You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 18. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters, saying, Go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide. All inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountain, you see it, and when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. For so says, so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest, and I will look from my dwelling place, like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew and the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower. He will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches, and they will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. And in that time a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin, And from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the greatness of your love for us. Thank you that you never run out of it. Thank you that you never run out of ways of demonstrating it to us, not only in the supreme way that you've done so in Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins and his burial and his resurrection, but all the ways that you do it through the daily of life and then give us in our spirit an ability to recognize your hand and your fingerprints. Thank you for being our shepherd, Lord, and thank you for the privilege of being the sheep of your pasture. And we have so enjoyed being able to lift up our praise and our thanksgiving to you. And now we ask through your word, Lord, that you would speak to us. We want you to know it means the world to us to hear your voice, that you would take even but one single truth off the pages of this incredible book and plant it within our heart and our mind in our spirit. We consider ourselves rich for experiencing that. And we pray that you would meet with us through your word tonight, in your word. And we pray that you would continue to give us a little taste of the heaven that we are headed toward in doing so. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. During the entire length of Isaiah's 40, 50, 60-year ministry, 
to the southern kingdom of Judah, the entire Middle East was dominated by one single great fact of life. And that fact of life was known as the Assyrian Empire. And at the time of this prophecy in the chapter that's before us this evening, Assyria was already a world-ruling empire. It was large, it was powerful, it had conquered much of what we know as the Middle East today, and now it is in, in, in an expansionist mode to now conquer the rest of the Middle East that it hadn't already conquered. Desiring now to extend its reach into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, Syria, Edom, Moab, Philistia, Egypt, and Ethiopia, who they now proceeded to threaten militarily. And all of this would have been bad enough for any of these nations who were next on the menu of the Assyrian Empire if Assyria was a benevolent and kind conqueror, but they weren't. And we know historically they were anything but that. They were the, couldn't have been further from that than they were. Most of what we know about the Assyrian Empire and Assyria's national history is centered upon its military campaigns and upon its battles. And its history is, according to one historian who encapsulates it perfectly, as he said, its history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. And he's absolutely true and correct in that assessment. It was their custom when they would conquer a country or a city or a province to displace the entire population to then move them out of their homes, out of their lands, out of their cities, into lands that were far away, the outer reaches from where they were into the outer reaches of the Assyrian Empire. It kept the peoples destabilized and allowed Assyria to hold on to its power and keep the people passive in a way that would have been harder for them to do if the people were allowed to remain in their native lands. It wasn't unusual for them to kill every man, woman, and child upon capturing a city and then piling their heads in a great, great heap at the entrance of that same city. It was also a part of their tactics to take thousands of captives at a time and then burn them alive. In some cases, they would take a city and flay all of uh, the skin off of the men who had resisted them and line the entire outer walls of the city with their skin. Concerning prisoners of war, there was no Geneva Conventions of War. They would cut off arms and legs and hands and feet of those who had resisted them. And in some cases, they would pale, impale men alive on these massive wooden stakes that they would erect at the gates of the cities that they had conquered. And there was an intent behind all of it. There was, it was a madness, but there was a method to the madness. And the intent on their part was in order to instill fear in all of the lands that they were yet desiring to conquer so that the news of all of this would spread to all of the other cities, all of the other nations in the area, lessen their resolve to then resist the Assyrian Empire. And indeed, the desire was that they would then uh, outright surrender and become voluntarily a part of the Assyrian Empire. 
They were the experts in the ancient world of what we know today as terrorism and the use of terror tactics. They were experts not only in physical warfare, and they were a marvel in the ancient world concerning physical warfare, but they were masters in their age of psychological warfare. And it is important to understand that this was the great political and national context of Isaiah's day. This was the great cloud that hung over the southern kingdom of Judah during the entirety of his ministry. And this great work of intimidation that was a part of the Assyrian Empire, it did work as the book of Isaiah records. The reaction of all of the nations that were uh, in next in line to be conquered by the Assyrians, all of this, of course, filled the populations of Edom and Moab and Syria and Israel and Egypt and Ethiopia with fear. And in their panic and desperation, they attempted to form these political and military alliances with their neighboring nations that they might be able to come up with a confederation of nations that they would think would be significant enough to withstand an Assyrian invasion. And so the northern kingdom of Israel aligned politically and militarily with Syria and then believing that together, even together, they could not withstand the Assyrian invasion of their lands. Both of them attempted to strengthen their alliance by enticing the southern kingdom of Judah into it. And when Judah refused, their desperation in the face of Assyria was so great that they then proceeded to invade Judah in an attempt to force her to join their alliance. And then Judah then took and approached Egypt for a military alliance. And here in our passage, we have the messengers coming from Ethiopia to Judah and to Egypt, calling upon them to join her in a military alliance. And the threat of Assyria spun the whole world into this frenzy of fear and this frenzy of frantic activity the news of Assyria, it filled the newspapers. It was the dominant theme of private conversations. It was the single great focus of governments in that day and of their citizenry. And, of course, if we put ourselves in their shoes in that ancient world, we can understand it. To have a ruthless, bloodthirsty, apparently unstoppable military of a nation that singularly rules the world is now at your border threatening not only yourself, but your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren. And here they are poised at the border to at worst kill you and your children, your grandchildren, everyone else in your city, or at best to confiscate everything you own, every pot, every pan, your home, all of your livestock, and then to send you with only the clothes on your back to live now the rest of your life in some remote foreign part of their empire. And 
all of this frenzied activity of man, the ambassadors being sent to and fro, the negotiations, the assessments, the secret meetings. It's what's being spoken about in this passage of Isaiah chapter 18, the buzzing wings and all of the messengers sent and and the uh, coming and going and these vessels of reed. It's all talking about negotiations that center upon the great threat of Assyria. And yet in the middle of all of the fear-filled frenzy of the activity of man in the face of all of this, you notice God's reaction to the threat of Assyria from the city of Jerusalem, the center of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. And his reaction is recorded in verse 4. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew and the heat of harvest. And I want you to notice two things from this verse. First, that he was watching everything that they were watching. He was as acutely aware of the history of the Assyrian Empire, of the threat that he represented to Judah as they were. He saw all of it from the peerless perspective of heaven, right from his throne. And he declared everything to be as clear to him about what Judah was facing at that moment as if he were physically present. And he uses poetic language to describe it there. As physically present as the clear heat of daytime sunshine and nighttime dew is present during the Middle Eastern August and September harvest of her grapevines and of her fruit trees. But then notice, in contrast to all of their fear and all of its associated frenzy of activity, that second of all, that he is at rest. And in the face of all that he's watching and all that he's seeing, he is the picture of peace. And the word rest that is used there in the Hebrew It literally means to have peace, to be at peace, to be experiencing quietness. Now, why in the world would God reveal himself as such to Isaiah and to Judah? Was it it in order for God to say to the nation of Judah, I have peace and you don't? Sorry about that. Of course, that wasn't what was on his uh, heart. What God was communicating to his people was this. If I am at peace, you can be at peace. If God is at peace, then the child of God can be at peace. And how wonderful it is to realize that. God was at peace when the whole world was frantic with fear. He was at peace for many, many reasons, but chief among them is what is known as his omnipotence and his omniscience. That is, that he is all-powerful and that he is all-knowing. I think about how much of our anxiety in life is a result of our powerlessness in the face of some circumstance that we are facing. 
we find ourselves in a difficult place in life, and as we sit down to try and figure out the circumstance that we find ourselves in, we discover that the problem is bigger than all of our resources. We really never panic until we realize that this problem is bigger than our resources, bigger than our ability to solve on our own. And when we discover that light goes on, that moment of that revelation where we realize this situation that I find myself in, it outstrips all of my mental resources, my emotional resources, my physical resources, my material resources, and the realization that the solution to this problem no longer lies in me. It is outside of my control. And so we panic. God never feels that. He never feels that emotion, ever, because there's no problem, as we've just sung to the Lord, no problem in the universe or in our world or in our nation or in our individual lives that he is powerless to fix and to do so in a moment. Now, another cause of our anxiety in life results from our lack of knowledge concerning the situation that we find ourselves in. And always, unlike God, we lack a full knowledge of the future. We face the problems that we face, and we don't know the course that they're going to take. We don't know uh, the, uh, what, uh, how it's going to turn out, the path that it's going to uh, follow on in, in finding its resolution ultimately. And that uncertainty is very, very hard on us. The unknown is a great challenge to each of us because it pushes us then into this thing called faith. God never experiences that. God never experiences that emotion. He is never involved in any situation except that he is fully aware of all of the facts and he knows exactly how the situation is going to play out. And that's why it is so important when we find ourselves in great crises in life that we talk it over with the Lord in prayer. And I know how I see uh, times like this in my life. When these situations hit in my life, I figure that it's a time to freak out. And so these things hit in my life. My first reaction is like just about everybody else. And I just begin to frantically pull in every resource, everybody that owes me anything, anything that I think I can borrow from somebody else, any kind of leverage that I can apply to the situation, anything that I need to deal with this. I understand chapter 18 of Isaiah very, very well. I understand sending messengers to Egypt and to Ethiopia and to Judah and to mom and to dad and to Uncle Billy and Opie and Aunt B and Goober and all of of them. But our Heavenly Father, who lacks nothing in terms of the power to fix our situation, and who lacks nothing in terms of knowledge about our situation and how it's all going to play out, when he looks at our situation, the one that has me in a panic, he is completely at peace. 
When I was originally diagnosed with cancer, uh, there's a funny thing that happens when you hear that word concerning yourself. There's a veil you go through. And I remember when I received that news from the guy that had done the operation to remove the lymph node and to see what's going on. Is this allergies or is this something else? And up to that point, I had, I'm just thinking it's allergies. I got just some from freak thing going on here and in, in, uh, going on in, in my life. And I remember hearing him use that cancer word related to me, and I just was stunned by the word. And almost an instant after, I mean, I kicked into gear. I kicked my mind into gear. I kicked my heart into gear that would have made the Ethiopians and the Egyptians proud. (laughs) Between the door of that oncologist or that doctor's office to the door of the car, and that's just across a very, very small area of parking lot, I thought to myself, I've got to find an oncologist who can treat me. And by the way, what's the name of that disease? I'm going to become an expert on that. And by the way, I think I'm going to plan my memorial service and pick out the pictures ahead of time that I want to be in part of it and say goodbye to all of my family. All of this thing is just going on. I'm going to take charge of the whole situation. And then I prayed to the Lord right there in the car with my wife. And it didn't happen all in one prayer. And I discovered, though, in that first prayer, that he was aware of everything that was news to me. And despite that, he was completely at peace in my situation. I needed a clear head involved in my life at that time. And he was more than a clear head at that time, perfectly at peace. And I prayed, Lord, I know how I see all of this. Would you please tell me how you see it when you look at it from the vantage of heaven, from your perspective, from the position of your omnipotence, from the position of your omnipresence? And you know what he did? He showed me how he saw it. And he told me how he saw it by giving me a verse from Scripture that I hold on to this day. And then by giving me later a word of knowledge concerning what was the most troubling aspect of all of this in my life. More recently, this last September, I liked to uh, bicycle. And um, it's its own sport. Think people look at it. I have friends who look at it and say, you put those little leotards on and go out in public and you call yourself a pastor. (laughs) But almost all of those older, you see the gray hair on those bicycles and stuff. They're almost all former athletes in some sport or another. But their hips have given out, their knees have given out, and this. But they want, they want to feel all that stuff still, but the body won't take the pounding that the other sports demanded. And I love that sport of cycling and, uh, and it, it thoroughly enjoyed it. And last September, ironically, it was on a cancer ride. 2,500 riders in this ride, and we hit a little past the 40-mile mark, and a guy 
did something very, very erratic that none of us could have expected that he would do, and he chopped my front tire out from in front of me. And uh, you're going to go down. I knew I was going to go down. I shouted out the last second. I said, no, hoping he would correct. But he swept in at such an angle, he took my front wheel out, and the whole line went out, 25 miles an hour, straight down. You stop on a dime right into the blacktop. So I cracked three ribs, and I broke my collarbone, and when they sat me up, it was sticking straight up like this out of my shoulder. You know, it was going to take surgery to get in there and all of it. And I knew, I knew I got, I knew I got hit. The two guys that were right behind me, they're right on my wheel. They both landed on me. They told me later, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you broke our fall. And uh, <laughs> so like a couple of days after that accident, when the morphine started to wear off, And uh, I never want to get near morphine again. It took care of everything. Way too good. And it began to wear off. And this thing hit me where now I'm dealing with the damage that I've done to my body on top of trying to let my body push this cancer back with what God was doing. And then I started to feel a little bit better. And then it was time for the surgery, which was then another setback. And in the midst of those three or four days after the surgery, I had those points in both of those places where I was was so low physically, I thought to myself, "I've I've gone too far. I don't know if my body can get out in front of the damage that I've done. Because there's a lot of other damage that was done it well as well. How do you see it, Lord? I know how I see it. I know how everybody else sees it. But I need to know how do you see it from the unique vantage point of your omnipotence and your omniscience. And he gave me a verse. I wanted a verse from Haggai. I wanted a verse from Zephaniah so that if anybody asked, I could say, yeah, God gave me a verse from Zephaniah, (laughs) from Haggai. But he gave me a verse that was one of the most well-known promises in all of the Bible. I said, what? Everybody gets that verse. Don't I get a special verse on top of that? I'm just kidding. I took that verse as his word to me, from his perspective in that situation, and I was happy. And I began to experience the fulfillment of that promise of his in that verse almost immediately in my life. And I could go on and talk about examples from my life because I do love talking about myself. I've got a captive audience. I mean, my wife won't even listen the way you're listening to me at this point. I'm kidding. But I I could go on and talk about the times in my life when my heart was broken beyond description in some personal relationship within the family, outside of the family. I could talk about the handful of times when I thought something involving my ministry as the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel in Modesto would literally be the death of me. 
that I would not survive this season in my life. And you have your list, and you know what you're in the middle of this evening. I only mention mine in order to prime the pump concerning your own. And then to say, we don't really know anything about a situation in our lives until God has told us how he sees it from his perspective. And he will always tell us how he sees it from his perspective. And our passage reminds us concerning every crisis that we face as his children that he sees all that is going on, your situation has his attention, but also that he is at peace concerning the ultimate outcome of it. And to trust in that as you wait for him then to answer your prayer. And maybe there's some of us here tonight in just the last two weeks or just in the last 48 hours you've given up hope in that situation that you're in the middle of and the Lord wants to speak to you concerning that situation. Now there's a couple of things that we need to remember in all of this. Number one, that God's inaction in our situation, apparent inaction, is never ever coming out of some ignorance on his part. He knows everything. He's watching. He sees. He's aware in a way that we could never even dream ourselves of being aware. He has clarity concerning our situation that we could never possess. And then second, never ever allow God's delays to cause you to doubt God's love for you. Now, some of you are saying, you taught on that last time I was here. Some of you might have forgot, so I'm coming back to it. Never, ever allow God's delays to cause you to doubt God's love for you. And here's why. It's important to realize, as I said last year, but we need to be reminded of it because you may still be waiting on that same situation and you're here tonight and you're saying, that guy's coming here to speak again. What he said last year didn't come true yet in my life. So God sends me here this year to say, that it might take him a little more than a year in your situation. But he's at work. No matter how perfect we think our plan or our timing is concerning some circumstance in our life, and I always think my plan is perfect. Anybody could see this is the clear way. This is the way out of it. You just do this and move this. And I was driving up the freeway and I saw, what's the lottery? 197 million or what? It's one ticket. This, it's, just, it's so easy to solve. And yet to realize if the Lord disregards our plan... It's only because he's up to something better for us. And sometimes it can be hard for us to believe that any other plan could be better than the one that we have envisioned. But as I said last year, 
and it's held true for a year, another year in my life, I can honestly say that every time the Lord has disappointed some expectation of mine on the short term, as time goes by and the reason for the delay becomes clear, I've always discovered that the delay was for my good. I am a testimony to that truth, and so are you. Later in the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, Therefore the Lord, Isaiah wrote, will wait that he may be gracious to you. Chapter 30, verse 18. And when God delays, it's only because he plans to outdo our best. And let me read this familiar passage to you as well. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, the Lord says, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, I've probably have heard that passage, I don't know how many times in my Christian life, and read it. And every time I hear it again, I find I need the correction and the perspective that it brings to my life. It's also important to realize that God's timing in our lives is based upon a greater goal than we so often operate under. I mean, most often I view the best way for God to work in my life as whatever is easiest and the quickest for me. I'm very much into self-preservation, by the way. However, God works in our lives, and as he does, it's with the greater goal of God being glorified through our lives and our circumstances. I want to feel that. I want to be a part of that. I want that testimony in my life. I just don't want to go through what's required for that to happen. Where's the correspondence course for this? And I get the honorary degree related to that. But it doesn't work that way. And oftentimes, in order for that to happen, it requires a situation become harder before it becomes better. And sometimes it will require that a situation becomes humanly impossible before he will step in then and rescue us in it. And that, of course, is the, one of the great lessons of Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead and waiting until he could get to Bethany and knowing that Lazarus would be dead in the grave already for four days. If he showed up earlier when Lazarus was just sick and then he healed him, everyone would wonder, yeah, I think he was on the mend anyway. Martha gave him this herbal drink and some kale and pineapple, you know, thing, and he that's pro they'd never know. But listen, when somebody's dead in the grave for four days and you raise him from the dead, that's an impossible situation. There's no kale for that. <laughs> then God gets all of the glory. So I like to read about Lazarus. I don't want to be Lazarus. And yet we're the Lazarus and the Martha and the Mary of this age in human history for the kingdom of God. God also expresses his power and his wisdom in our life in such a way that it will conform us into the image of Christ. In other words, that it causes us to grow spiritually. And all spiritual growth looks like Christ. Romans 8.28, one of the most famous and beloved passages in all of the entire Bible. 
And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called the called according to his purposes. But we should almost prohibit it being quoted independent of the verse that follows it, verse 29, for whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, the good that God is taking and working all things together toward is defined in verse 29 as being that which conforms me into the image of Christ, that which makes me more like him. And God can allow hard situations into our lives knowing that we cannot become like Jesus in some, other, some area of our life any other way. And we can end up very confused by God's timing and his actions in some situations if we don't realize that. And if we don't look at the situation and in a moment of honesty with ourselves realize just between us and God, this is making me more like Jesus in a way that I know could not occur any other way. And to stop and look at the trials that we find ourselves in and to ask ourselves, is this making me and conforming me into the image of Christ in a way that I know it took something this strong or this hard in order to do it for me to have even begin to get some kind of a semblance of understanding or experience of his compassion and his love and his understanding and his truth and his eternal perspective and the material simplicity of the life that he lived and so forth. And to stop and to think, and I'll tell you, I've learned things, and I'm not the old wise Al, but my testimony is the only one I have. I know I've learned things. In the middle of some of the things that God has brought into my life and allowed into my life in the last few years, and I know I have learned things about the heart of God there that I would never have learned any other way. And sometimes it's good to look at the fix that we're in before God comes in and moves it to his God-appointed end and to say, what is this teaching me about Christ and what of Christ's character is being developed in my life that wouldn't otherwise be? And to realize that while we think God is tardy, while we think God is inactive, we realize he's not inactive at all. He's being very active in my life before he then addresses the problem that is doing this beautiful thing within me and within you. Now, the rest of the story concerning Isaiah chapter 18 is found in chapter 37. And God had promised Judah through Isaiah's prophetic ministry, that the Assyrians would indeed invade Judah and attempt to overthrow Jerusalem, but that against all odds, Jerusalem will not fall to Assyria's military machine. And subsequently, the whole of Assyria's army, led by Sennacherib himself, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Everybody inside of the city has got to be thinking, 
We're doomed. We're the next one on their menu. They're going to destroy us. And then in verse 36, on a given night, from his throne in heaven, God dispatched just a single angel to supernaturally wipe out the entire Assyrian army, and in one night he struck down and killed 185,000 front line, the best military in the entire ancient world at the time. And all of it's poetically described in chapter 18, verses 5 and 6. Though for a time it appeared that God was only this quiet watcher of the events of their lives and our lives, at just the right moment, he then demonstrated his power, his omniscience, and his providence. And God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. If God is at peace concerning our situation, then we can be at peace concerning our situation. Everything is under control. You're not just anybody in the world as a child of God. You are a child of God. And he takes responsibility for that position. If you're a child in a room where something dangerous happens or something frightening occurs, as a child, what's the first thing that you do? You look over to dad to see how he's responding to that same thing that you feel might be a threat. And if, it, if he's at peace, then you know you can be at peace. Why? Because you know that you are his greatest concern. And so we are. God knows exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And it's coming. And it's coming for you. And I'd like the worship team to come out or come forward at this time. And if you're comfortable with it, as they're coming out and getting in place, I'd like you just to close your eyes and let me just continue to speak to you for a moment in a, a spirit of prayer. But I want you just to think about that something. What is that thing in your life tonight? What is that relationship? What is that trial? What is that circumstance? What is your greatest concern tonight? And then to speak in your heart and for God to bear witness to it in your spirit and to say to yourself and to your inner man, if God is at peace, I can be at peace. If God is at peace, I can be at peace. If God is at peace, I can be at peace. If God is at peace, I can be at peace. And as the worship team leads us in worship now, to repeat that as often as necessary in the coming moments and minutes until all of that fear and the frenzy and the activity gives away to the great truth of Isaiah chapter 18, that if God is at peace, I can be at peace. And now, Lord, confirm your word 
with accompanying signs and wonders in each one of our hearts tonight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Damian Kyle. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Damian's teaching ministry by visiting ccmodesto.com.